it's an incredible truth that we were just singing about there, this invitation from our Heavenly Father to come to Him, arms open wide, and the forgiveness that is found through Jesus, through His sacrifice on the cross for us. And we wanna take some time now in our service just to give thanks for that again, to remember again the incredible truth that is found through Jesus, through His sacrifice on the cross for us, and the hope and healing and forgiveness that is found through Him. So as we share in communion, I wanna invite you at home just to link in and to share with us as well. You might wanna grab some bread and some juice uh, from the kitchen or wherever, grab it. And um, you can share in this together as well. As this is a, a meal, a feast that we had to share together as believers, as Jesus instructed us to. And, um, as we're getting ready for this, I just wanna share with you a passage from Romans chapter 15. And it says these words, it says, that I pray that God, the source of hope, will fill you completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. And we know that we are living in a world, in a time when people are desperately searching for hope. It's something that each and every one of us need. We were created to have hope, a certain assurance. And here we read that God is the source of hope. Sometimes we look in all sorts of places to find that hope that we need deep within our hearts, but the Scriptures tell us that actually it's God. God is the source of hope. And it says that we can be filled completely with joy and peace because you trust in Him. And it's actually speaking here, Paul is speaking, the Him is Jesus. And placing our trust in Jesus is about placing our trust in what He has done for us on the cross, that there He took the punishment that we deserved. He opened the way for us to be able to receive forgiveness of sins, to discover and encounter the hope that God offers to us. And then it finishes here, it says, then when you do this, when you place your trust in Jesus and what He's done for you on the cross, then you will overflow with confident hope. And I love that because we use the term hope in all sorts of general and sort of vague ways. But here the Scriptures talk about a confident hope, a assurance that we can have in our hearts. And this comes, it says, through the power of the Holy Spirit. And when we come to Jesus, when we experience new life in Him, forgiveness in Him, He gives us the gift of His Holy Spirit. God dwelling within us by His Holy Spirit. It's an incredible truth for us to grab hold of. And all this is made possible through Jesus, through His sacrifice for us on the cross. And so as we come and we worship together tonight, this is what we wanna remember. This is what we wanna celebrate. This is the truth that we want to take hold in our hearts afresh tonight. And so on the night Jesus was betrayed with His disciples, just before He went to the cross, He took the bread and He broke it and He said, this is my body which is given for you. And He said, I want you to eat this and remember my sacrifice. And so I wanna encourage you, invite you now, just to eat the bread where you are as we remember Jesus' sacrifice for us. Let's do that together. In the same way, Jesus took the cup and He said, this cup represents my blood, which has been given for the forgiveness of sins. And we had a drink, He says, and to remember all that Jesus has done for us until He comes again. So why don't we drink together as we do that? Well, Lord Jesus, we wanna thank You tonight, Lord. Thank You for these incredible truths. Thank You for the hope that is found in You and in You alone, great God. You are the source of hope. And Lord, this comes to us through our faith and trust in Jesus and all that He has done for us on the cross. Thank You, Lord, 
that we can know forgiveness of sins, that we can know a certain hope and Lord, your very presence with us through the gift of the Holy Spirit. Lord, these are incredible truths that we wanna celebrate, Lord, that we wanna thank you for. We wanna praise you and worship you for this very night, Lord. So, And thank you, Lord, that we can join together as one as we share in this meal together now. So we give you thanks. We worship with all of our hearts. We pray this in Jesus' Name. Amen. Why don't we just continue to worship together, give Him thanks from our hearts for all that He has done for us. We're going to hear from Dan right now, but he's, we're going to flick straight to a video. It's the end of the world. The moon turns to blood, mountains crumble, mutant locusts swarm. These are just some of the strange images we find in parts of the Bible called apocalyptic. And while most people think the biblical word apocalypse means the end of the world, it actually doesn't mean that at all. Now let's look at the last book of the Bible, the Revelation, because it's one really long vision. The whole thing is an apocalypse. Yeah, and it works the same way. It begins with John the visionary transported to God's throne room where he sees the risen Jesus as the exalted king of the world. But Jesus is depicted as a bloody lamb. Right, it's a design pattern showing how Jesus is the sacrificial lamb from Israel's Passover and from the Day of Atonement. He gave his life for the sins of the world. And then John sees the ultimate beastly dragon, that spiritual power that energizes violent earthly empires. It's cast out by Jesus, the world's true king. Yeah, now that reminds me, when I read the Revelation, I'm struck by all this cosmic destruction and violence. I mean, it happens over and over and over. Yeah, in the Revelation, there are three seven-part cycles of God's judgment, and it's another design pattern that connects together the stories of the flood, the 10 plagues on Egypt, and the exile to Babylon, and even more. These are moments when humans unleash so much violence and death into the world that God hands them over to self-destruction. It's like a reversal of creation in Genesis chapter one, as God allows the world and humans to sink back into darkness and disorder. That's sobering. It is. But remember, in Genesis one, God overcame darkness and chaos with his light and life. And so too in the Revelation, the death of Jesus and the death of the world as we know it is the pathway into the renewed creation that began with the resurrection of Jesus. And so while the Revelation feels like the end of the world. It's actually about the beginning of the renewed world where heaven and earth are reunited and God's human images rule all creation in the love and power of God. Okay, this is a lot to take in. It is. And there's a lot in these books that is still hard to understand, but the purpose of apocalyptic is really clear, to give us a heavenly perspective on our earthly circumstances so that every generation of God's people can be challenged, comforted, and given hope for the future. Well, it's great to be beaming into your living rooms or wherever you are tonight. Uh, as you may have guessed, we're starting a new series. You would have guessed that by the video or maybe by the fact that there's a C behind me. Um, but we're actually excited to be focusing in um, over the next few weeks on Revelation 2 to 3, which covers seven letters to the churches in Asia Minor. And tonight we're gonna give a bit of context to the series and then we're gonna dive in to the first letter to the Ephesians. 
And as we saw in the video, the revelation is an apocalypse, but that doesn't mean the end of the world. Um, it's actually the Greek word for revelation. And a revelation is designed to give us a visually and emotionally charged heavenly perspective of our earthly circumstances. To challenge, to comfort, to give us hope for the future. It's meant to engage not only our heads, but all of our being. And John is the author of the Revelation and he begins in chapter one by affirming the nature of God, which he assumes that his readers already know. And that's this, that God is the beginning and the end. He is the almighty. He has through Jesus revealed that he loves us and he's freed us from our sins and made us a kingdom and priests to God. The problem for John's audience is this. If God is eternal, powerful, just, then how do you explain how people who have faith in him suffer harassment, poverty, and even death? You may be thinking this very thing yourself, especially given the current season that we're going through, um, this pandemic. Um, maybe this, this pandemic at one stage felt to you and did to many people like it very well could have been the end of the world. But how do we reconcile and respond to God's nature in light of the reality we seem to see around us? That's what we're gonna be looking at over the coming weeks as we tackle the different letters that John writes to the churches in chapters two and three. How can we thrive as Christians, as human beings, regardless of the situation that we're in? The revelation is going to pull back the curtains of reality and time and show us things as they really are from God's eternal perspective. We're gonna see a cosmic battle that we're not just observers of, we're not just people watching on from the sidelines, but we're right in the thick of battle. Nothing is as it seems. So Revelation 1, as I said, frames the nature of God and it's the traits that are shown there that are gonna be drawn on by the seven letters, the traits of who Jesus is. And in fact, the letters are actually the interpretive key that bind the whole book of Revelation together. They're fundamental to understanding the apocalyptic visions and also the hope for the new creation that is coming. Each letter ends with a call for individuals and the church communities to listen to what the Spirit is saying to the churches. So this is not something only meant for the church that is being addressed. It's meant for us today as individuals and to our church community now. 
the, the revelation is actually also a circular letter, which means it made the rounds. Um, have a look at the image there. What you'll see is that John is writing from a little island called Patmos. Uh, it's in that bottom left or the southwestern part of that map. And he's starting the letter being sent to Ephesus, and then it's going to go all the way around, and it's going to end in Laodicea. That'll be the final letter that we're covering. It's like when I was in high school, at the end of each term, we would get a sealed letter with our report card in it, a sealed envelope. And the intention was we would take this home to our parents, still sealed, and they would see our grades. But what happened in reality was we would get together with our friends after school and we would open up each envelope one by one and we would show our grades to each other. So everyone knew where we stood. This is what's happening here in this letter. It's doing the rounds. It's capturing what each church is doing well and what they're falling down in. Uh, But the intention here is not to stigmatize or to condemn. It's to encourage ongoing faithfulness in their current situation. So let's jump into the first letter in Revelation 2, 1 to 7. If you've got a Bible handy, it'd be great if you could pull that out and follow along. It'll just give you a real good feel for the structure of the letter. It's really short, just the whole pattern you'll be able to see there. But let's pray before we get into that. Lord, we come to you with hearts open. Uh, We know that you wanna speak. And so we ask that you open our ears to hear what you have to say to us this evening. Uh, the call that you have for our whole lives. So speak to us now as we come to your word. In Jesus' name, amen. So think about this as we read. What are the Ephesians doing well? What are they falling down in? And what's the hope for the future? So Revelation 2, 1 to 7. To the angel of the church in Ephesus, write, and this is Jesus speaking, by the way. These are the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand. The seven stars are the angels representing the seven churches. He holds the seven stars in his right hand and walks among the seven golden lampstands. The lampstands being the seven churches, the stars being the angels of the churches. He continues, I know your deeds, your hard work and your perseverance. I know that you cannot tolerate wicked men, that you have tested those who claim to be apostles but are not and have found them false. You have persevered and have endured hardships for my name and have not grown weary. Yet I hold this against you, you have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you have fallen. Repent and do the things you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. But you have this in your favor. You hate the practices of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. He who has an ear, 
listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. So how can we learn from this letter? How can this help us thrive in the storm? Well, tonight we're gonna focus on three main questions. And that's this, what are the Ephesians doing well? What are they challenged on? And what does this mean for us? So what are the Ephesians doing well? We see in verses two and three that their deeds are characterized by hard work. Usually in the New Testament, this is to describe the work that they're doing in discipleship and sharing the gospel. They persevere, they have patient endurance, which is another stellar trait. Patient endurance is like this bridge between the suffering that they're currently going through and the hope that is promised them. They're doing well on the cosmic report card so far. We see that they don't tolerate evil. They test those who make false claims and they're good judges of character. The Ephesians clearly know their stuff. They can tell between good and evil. They've got good doctrine. They've resisted corruption and aren't willing to compromise on their beliefs. They've stood fast in affirming who Jesus is and what he's done. They haven't grown weary or tired of doing so. Ephesus is is actually um, arguably the most illustrious, the most distinguished city in Asia Minor. And the Christian community here refused to be complacent and join in with the crowd, but they press on despite the difficulty of persecution. And if we jump over to verse six, we also see that they have another favorable trait, that they hate the practices of the Nicolaitans. Now, the Nicolaitans were this group of professing Christians who were willing to eat meat uh, that was offered to Greco-Roman gods in most, if not all, circumstances. Uh, The Ephesians won't budge on what they know to be right, so they reject the practice. Most likely, it's because they believe that it will give others outside the Christian community the impression that they condone sacrifices to idols. So we see they're doing very well so far. But what is it that the Ephesians are having issues with? After such rave reviews, it's actually quite startling to read verses four and five. This is what it says. Jesus says, yet I hold this against you. You have forsaken your first love. Remember the height from which you've fallen. Repent and do the the things that you did at first. If you do not repent, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place. 
This is a community who are standing firm in Christ and yet lack love. Somehow all the good that they're doing, all the hard work, the discipleship, the evangelism, the perseverance in suffering, their good doctrine, all of it is nothing without love at its core. They've forsaken their first love. Now, what is this first love that's being spoken about here? And from the text, we can't actually tell whether this is love for God or love for their brothers and sisters in Christ, for the Christian community. But really, they're one and the same thing, whether it's love for God or love for the brothers and sisters. You can't have one without the other. John, in his letter uh, of 1 John, actually confirms this in chapter 4, verse 20, where he says, Anyone who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. See, the Ephesians have fallen into the temptation to put their emphasis on sound teaching. And in the process they've lost their love for one another. Maybe there was even a bit of pride there. They were so refined in their doctrine and they could even boast about it, but no more. Because remember, this is a circular letter. Everything that's written here to them is going to all the other churches as well. The truth is out. It's not that they never had love, but Jesus can see where things are headed and he's calling on them to look back and see what they've lost so that they can recover it. It's a test for them, a revelation to see what they couldn't before. If they recapture this first love, then it will look exactly like the deeds that they did for the Christian community at first. And it says, if they don't repent, if they don't go back, the consequence is of removing their lampstand, which this this seems like a harsh reality given the balance of their deeds. You know, they're, they're not all bad. It's just this one thing. But this is a clear demonstration that at the heart of the Christian faith, is not in the first instance ethical or institutional, but it's relational. It's a relationship with Jesus and with one another in the body of Christ. Organization and action must follow, but not take the place of relationship. It's important to know that the letter starts by showing Jesus' nearness and care to the churches. He's shown walking among the seven lampstands and it ends with a promise of hope to the faithful, eternal life in the paradise of God. This assurance and hope is the intention of the letter, not condemnation. It's assurance of God's love and his desire for them to abide in his love, which is eternal life. 
So what does this mean for us today? This is what it says in chapter two, verse seven. He who has an ear, listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who conquers, I will give the right to eat from the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This call to listen is actually a strong command here. If you have an ear, then listen to what the Spirit says to the churches. And to those who listen and conquer, and here to conquer is to remain faithful, then the right is given to eat from the tree of life, the promise of eternal life. So how can we remain faithful in the presence? How can we thrive in the storm? What is the Spirit saying to us through this letter? How can we know if we're conquering, remaining faithful and are recipients of the promise of eternal life? In John's other letter, 1 John, he gives us three tests three criteria for us to know whether we are remaining faithful. And here are the the tests. The theological test, the moral test, and the relational test. And, And please listen to me here. I can't stress this enough. Don't misunderstand these tests. They're not a means by which eternal life can be grasped or gained by us. If we're failing in any area, the answer isn't to try harder, to pass. These tests help prompt us to see if the life of Christ is working itself out in us. If we find that we're lacking in any way, the answer is to go back to Jesus and to know his love afresh, to remember our first love. So these tests can help us gauge whether eternal life, whether God's life is in us, whether it's working itself out. And the first is the theological test. It's about doctrine. Do you believe that Jesus is the son of God, that he came in the flesh, that he died on a cross and was raised to life so that you could enter into a relationship with God? Are you unashamed of these truths? Do you hold to them and profess them? The Ephesians have a big tick on this test on the theological test. They're good on doctrine. Not only do they affirm these truths, but they're teaching them and communicating these truths to others outside the Christian community. The second test is the moral one. Are we practicing righteousness? Do we keep the commands of God? Sin is incompatible with the nature of who God is. The very mission of the son Jesus was to take away sins. As Christians, we've been born again into a new reality. Do you see that in your life? 
a desire to be completely distant and separate from sin. Again, the Ephesians pass the moral test with all the pressures to compromise and fall back into the way that they were living before they became Christians. They maintain a strong repulsion to engaging in sinful practices. They grew to hate those practices. And the final test is relational. Do we know God's love for us? Are we compelled to love him as a result? Do we love one another within the Christian community? Do you love your brothers and sisters in Christ? And this is where the Ephesians fell. They were masters at doctrine, exemplary at upright living, good at discipleship and evangelism. They had all the right answers and yet somehow they were missing the mark. The things they were doing were all good things. And I wanna wanna stress this as well, because Jesus actually commends them for it. It's not that they're bad things that they're doing, they're actually doing a great job at them. But they were missing the key. And their love for one another was growing cold. Remember the heart of the Christian faith is not in the primary sense doctrinal or moral. The heart of the Christian faith is relational. Doctrine and morality are necessary second, secondary tests in confirming the relationship, whether the relationship is working itself out, but they hinge on our relationship with Jesus and on our relationship with his body, with one another. Out of this relationship flows the correct use of doctrine and right living. Doctrine becomes not cold statements of fact, but an exploration of the depth of God's love. Right living, instead of being a chore or a burden, becomes a joy in expressing our love. The moment we prioritize anything over the relationship with Jesus and his people is the moment that we begin to close the door on God's love. And you'll have a sense if that's ever happening because the joy and love begins to drain from your own life. So how do we stay connected to our first love? By fixing our eyes on Jesus. Jesus has revealed God's love for us. He has made a way for us to be in relationship with him. He has made a way for us to be included in his family, to be included in his body. And it's the natural outworking of this that we begin to love him. And that's shown by our love for his body as well, for the Christian community. 
So what are some ways that we can involve ourselves in the body of Christ? How can we love Him in our everyday activities? How can we love Him this week? And I wanted to make it a bit practical for us this week. Something easy, just three points, three things that you can do. One of them, two of them, all of them, whatever you're able to do this week. But here's, here are three points that you can pick up in the coming week. The first one is just to read Revelation 1 together with someone. Revelation 1 and the first letter that we've covered tonight. Chapter 2, verses 1 to 7. Just read that with someone. It could be your family, a Christian friend, your connect group, whatever it is. Find someone to read this with. But pray that the Holy Spirit would speak to you, that you would have ears to hear what he has to say to you. Maybe it's affirmation, challenge, a call to something specific in your life. Open up your heart to him together and listen to what he has to say. The second thing you could do is just to join in with the community at church. There's different ways of doing that, but maybe, maybe join a prayer group this week if you don't usually do that. Uh, we've, we've actually got hybrid models of prayer now, whether you can do it in person uh, here at the church, come to a prayer meeting, or you can um, zoom in and join the pre- prayer meeting that way. Just come together with the Christian community and live out the life that God is calling us to together as his body. Another thing you can do is very simple, is just invite one of your brothers and sisters in Christ, one of the church family over for a meal. Uh, Maybe if you can't do that, you can't invite them over, go out for a meal, but just enjoy that time together. Love one another as you get to know each other, as you become a part of each other's lives, as you're knit together as Christ's body. They're just a few things that you can do this week. If God has prompted you in another way, that's fine, do that. Always be listening to what the Spirit has to say. But let's pray and just come to God, offering ourselves afresh. Father, thank you for the work that you are doing in our lives as individuals, but as a community as well. Thank you that you've made a way for your love to be made real in our lives as we fellowship with one another, as we are bound together by your spirit. Thank you for growing us in Christian community, for using your body in different ways. We've seen that even this week as the hampers went out, 3,800 hampers to date going out. This is your body being united, Christian community, our love for one another overflowing out. God, we wanna see more of this. Open up our hearts. We wanna give everything that we are to you. So show us, Father, by your Spirit, speak to us. Help us to know the direction that you want us to go and make us a people who are completely sold out for your plans and purposes. Lord, we look forward in expectation for all that you're doing in our lives. Make us people who love you and love others well and who are completely distinct because of the hope that we have in you. So bless each one of us tonight in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, that's so true. Holy is your name.
And so, Father, we just pray right now. Um, we just pray that You'll come and just continue to change us as a people. Thank You for that beautiful Word, Lord. You're speaking into us. Um, we just ask now that we'll take that, Father, and we'll just allow Your Holy Spirit to keep changing and shaping us, Lord, to be the people that You long us to be. Um, we ask in Jesus' Name. Amen. Thanks for joining us. Um, it's, it's been so good having you as part of our services this week um, for this new series that we're in as well. If at any point tonight you've just really sensed that God was speaking to you or you want prayer about anything, you want to talk to someone about something, we'd love to connect with you. You can either send through an email to prayerabridgement.org.au. Um, you can email hello at bridgman.org.au or you can just phone the office if you want. We'd love to do life with you. Um, if at any point too you've sensed um, that you've never given your life to Jesus and you would love to do that or begin that journey, you can do that a couple of ways. Um, and I want to encourage you to do this. You can, um, on the site that you're on at the moment, there's a, a button that you can press that says uh, yes to Jesus. I think that's on the, the Bridgman, uh, the Live at Bridgman um, and also on Facebook as well. Otherwise, just email us. I, I want to encourage you to do that because um, having Jesus in your life is the only secure foundation that I've ever discovered. And so I want to encourage you in that. Um, but I just want to say thanks for joining us. And we just pray you have a blessed week um, and we ask that you'll just know God's presence in your life this week. God bless. Thanks for joining with us for our service today. If you sense God speaking to you or you'd like to find out more, we want to help and encourage you on your journey of faith. You can reach out to us via our website or email hello at bridgman.org.au. And don't forget, if you have a prayer need, we'd love to pray for you. And you can fill in a prayer card on our website or email prayer at bridgman.org.au. I'm praying God's blessing for you this week and we look forward to connecting with you again soon.